Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. Joining me in the studio today are Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent, and Sam Fleming, our financial policy correspondent. This week, we'll be discussing the move by Barclays to exit parts of its investment banking and international operations by shifting £400 billion of these assets into a bad bank. We'll dig into the protest vote at Standard Chartered's annual meeting last week when more than 40% of investors opposed its binding pay vote. And we'll check how banks are responding to regulators' demands for them to hold more capital against a potential rise in interest rates. Starting with Barclays and Daniel, this retreat from global investment banking that Barclays announced last week, do you think this is precedented and how has it gone down with investors? Mm. It definitely went down very well with investors. The share price rose around 8% on the day that it was announced, the new strategy was announced. And it also, I would say for a European bank, isn't unprecedented because we have seen other European banks, particularly the Swiss banks, UBS and Credit Suisse, announced similar moves in the past two years. UBS being the most radical one, they were basically saying they're going to exit most of fixed income businesses and cut 10,000 jobs at the time. And Barclays has now announced something similar, although maybe not quite as radical as UBS did. But the big difference between the two banks is that Barclays actually was a fixed income powerhouse, or still is a fixed income powerhouse. According to Greenwich Associates, they have been number two in the world in terms of revenues last year. They are actually getting out of a big part of what used to be their profit engine in the investment bank, which is also the part that Bob Diamond, the former chief executive and former head of the investment bank, has built up during his tenure at the bank. So what's driving this? Why are they being forced to do this? Yeah, I think the main reasons really are that in the new regulatory environment we're seeing, it is much, much harder for a big bank, particularly in Europe, to stay in those businesses, because particularly in fixed income, there are a lot of business lines that are much more costly in terms of the capital you have to hold against them to run, and thus more difficult to make them profitable. And secondly, there is what we've seen since last year is a debate about the leverage ratio and tougher requirements on the leverage ratios. So that again makes it harder for a bank to make the return on capital in these fixed income areas that consume a lot of balance sheet and the balance sheet, i.e. the assets a bank has on its balance sheet, 
have to be cut to meet the leverage ratio requirements. And that's one thing that Barclays had to look after because they were running behind on the leverage ratio. I heard uh, the chief executive, Anthony Jenkins, explaining that the capital they have to hold against some of these fixed income businesses have gone up three to fourfold in the last few years. Uh, there's another Barclays story around this morning on the front page of this morning's FT, in fact, with news that uh, Bob Diamond, who you've just mentioned, and John Varley, his predecessor as chief executive, another senior former executives from Barclays are set to be questioned under caution by the UK's serious fraud office. What's this all about, Daniel? Basically, this is about a cash call. It's an investigation into a cash call that Barclays did at the height of the financial crisis in 2008 when they raised more than $6 billion from the Qataris plus another few billion from other investors at the time, basically in order to avoid a government bailout. And a few years ago, Barclays announced that the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, is investigating this cash call at the time because Barclays failed to disclose, as the FCA says, failed to disclose £322 million in fees that were paid uh, to the Qataris. If you add up that with the disclosed fees, then it means that they basically paid 7% of the overall cash call to the Qataris in terms of fees. And so the FCA is saying you really paid this in order to make them invest in the cash call, whereas Barclays has said this was payment they made, fees they made for advisory they received from Mm. the Qataris to do business in the region and other things. And what we've now seen is that also the SFO has for a while stepped into the investigation and they are both looking at Barclays itself as well as around a dozen individuals who've been involved in the cash call at the time. So they are now in the middle of interviewing people like Bob Diamond, John Valley, but also Chris Luke the former chief financial officer, and Roger Jenkins, who headed their uh, tax structuring business. So the fact that they're being interviewed under caution indicates that the SFO thinks there may be reason to suspect that criminal charges might be justified in this respect. Yeah, we don't know yet for sure whether they're going to charge them, but it is an indicator that they might do, definitely. Mm. They haven't been formally accused of any wrongdoing in this, but it could end up in a situation where they're going to charge them. Right. Interesting. Okay, thanks, Daniel. Now to another UK-listed bank that's been in the firing line of late, Standard Chartered, and uh, this big protest vote last week, Charlene. What happened? So this was at Standard Chartered's annual general meeting last week. The investors registered a significant protest rate, voting for the biggest that we've seen this year, against the bank's revised pay structure. And this was particularly interesting because with some of the protests that we've seen at Barclays, AstraZeneca, Pearson, and the Financial Times, they've been on the remuneration report. So they've just been for 2013. And non-binding. And non-binding. Standchart's investors took a dislike to the new binding vote that was introduced last October as a way to sort of stop excessive corporate pay and I think just over 40% of investors oppose this so it was a massive protest and very awkward for the bank because this is what defines its pay structure over the next three years and as you said a binding vote so they only narrowly got it through and the bank is going to have to now go away and talk to investors and decide whether to make changes to that. What were the investors upset about and what's the bank going to do about it did they say? Mainly they were upset at some changes the bank had made to the kind of targets that determined the payouts for its senior executives. And the particular point of that that they didn't like was that the bank had made them a lot more short term. So actually in opposition to what policymakers have wanted to kind of get more longer term stretching targets to 
avoid excessive risk-taking. Standard Chartered has appeared to go the other way. And for the chief executive, Peter Sands, a quarter of his variable pay will be linked to three-year targets and the remainder, so almost three-quarters, will be dependent on just his performance in the single year. So that was the point they didn't like. There were other things that they applauded Standard Charter for doing, so it removed some cash payments from bonuses and deferred them over a longer period, five years rather than three, but still that sticking point, they won't change. Now, the bank said that it would be consulting with investors and it would report back, really, so it didn't give any details as to whether it might change things up, but it sounded like there was a broad acknowledgement within the bank that it would have to do something different. Sounds like it. We'll watch that one closely. Thanks, Charlene. Okay, now to the battle between banks and their regulators over the question of interest rates and how much capital banks should hold for the potential or the likely rise in interest rates. They can't go down much further. They're bound to go back up. It's just a question of when, really. But banks seem to be putting up a bit of a fight over this. What's going on? Sam Fleming's here to tell us. The Basel task force on this, the Basel uh, Committee of Regulators, is looking at whether banks should hold more standardised amounts of capital against the risk of adverse moves in interest rates. This is not the first time global regulators have looked at this by any means. Uh, They've been looking at it for decades. One big flurry of interest after the savings and loans crisis in the late 80s and early 90s in the US. However, having another crack at it, this work has been going on since the end of last year. It's still in its early phases, but the banks are now beginning to uh, marshal their forces, really, because it could be quite costly for them. The debate is over whether there should be a pillar one capital charge for interest rate risk. A lot of banks are required to hold capital against the risk of an adverse move in market interest rates under pillar two, which is specific to them and done in dialogue with their regulator. It's not a globally harmonised regime. The question is whether this task force will look at a pillar one regime, which would then apply to all banks equally across the world as covered by the Basel framework. So it'd be quite a big deal, as one consultant, Paul Sharma, I spoke to, put it, is the final frontier in bank regulation. This is an area where they've tried over many years to come up with some standard regime for interest rate risk and have always failed. So it's quite um, a complex area. By no means are we out of the woods or anywhere near a clarity on it, but it is quite a big deal for the banks. Okay. The final frontier. Forgive me, though, Sam, why would this be an interest rate rise be bad news for banks necessarily because surely rising interest rates means that their net interest margin would increase and they'd make more profits. Correct. And that's certainly an argument the banks are making themselves. In some ways, higher interest rates is good news for them, they'd argue. I suppose what the regulators are wanting to ensure is that the banks are covered for all eventualities and certainly a very sharp, surprising lurch in interest rates, which was then carried over a prolonged period of time, could hurt some business models. It's really extremely specific and idiosyncratic individual banks, how they run their assets and liabilities, how they hedge the, their liabilities. And so this is what the regulators effectively want to get to grips with. But it's clearly a big issue right now. We've gone through five, six years of ultra low interest rates. A massive move in global interest rates could hurt a whole range of financial institutions. And the regulators want to make sure that the banks, because of their pivotal role in the economy, are not amongst them. And I guess it's tied into all the regulatory concern over house prices and uh, potentially the big jump in interest rates could could trigger a rise in defaults on mortgages, right? Absolutely. If you look at what the Bank of England, for instance, is doing in the EBA in that stress testing uh, regime right now, it's all about what would the impact be of a very sharp move in interest rates on a range of asset prices. 
Okay, thanks very much, Sam. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Daniel, Charlene and Sam for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.